Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Civil War Shorts. This podcast is my effort to have monthly talks about Civil War subjects that I find interesting and hopefully important, but I don't feel receive very much attention. I feel like they kind of get glanced over, even though they're important. And, and since I don't have the patience to write a book, I thought I would talk about them here. So hopefully you find them interesting. Today's episode is about enlistments. On April 12, 1861, the United States was not ready for war. The U.S. regular army was made up of less than 15,000 men at that point. They were divided into 198 companies, and 183 of those were posted west of the Mississippi River, and usually in far-flung locations like rural Texas or the Pacific Northwest. The remaining 15 were east of the Mississippi River, but they were mainly posted along the Canadian border. And troops were scattered to protect borders and to get in hit-and-run fights with Native Americans while securing as much territory as possible. There was little manpower distributed in locations where people actually lived. In the United States' first 80 years of existence, that's exactly the way the government and the populace wanted the army to be set up. As a small sustaining force, they were dispatched to do long-term dirty work, essentially. That's what the national tradition was. The United States had broken away from an English military machine, and the Americans were incredibly distrustful of large standing armies that required impressed troops and long-term service. It helped that there was a lack of standing armies across enemy borders, which prompted so many European nations throughout history to keep large standing armies in the field and under arms at all times. For this reason, the United States was able to get away with a small force of regulars for the first 80 years of its existence. That's not to say the Confederate states were ready for war either on April 12, 1861. Yes, South Carolina state troops, militia, had fired on Fort Sumter, but the Confederacy didn't want to go to war. The war meant money and resources and agents and treaties and diplomats that the Confederacy, a government that had been formalized only two months before, didn't have. The Confederacy wanted to make a play for peace, and in the opening stages of the war, they had efforted to raise a permanent army of just 10,000 men, an intentionally small force to generate a defensive force while showing a disinterest in aggression. But when shots were fired in Fort Sumter, everything changed. Suddenly, groups of men that President Lincoln officially viewed as independent individuals who were rising against the government had fired on federal troops. Suddenly, with passions flared, Washington, D.C. was in danger. Suddenly, the question of secession had taken a violent turn. And by April 15, 1861, both North and South knew they would need more men. And fast. President Lincoln needed to respond after Fort Sumter was fired on, but a constitution suspicious of a large military made it difficult for the country to bring troops into the field. Lincoln was chief executive of the military, but he did not have the power to add to the number of troops in the standing army. That power was reserved for Congress. So to secure men to fight for the Union, President Lincoln did what all U.S. leaders had done since 1776. He turned to the states for help. The United States still has, but it had at the time also, a long-standing love of citizens dropping their plows and tools, picking up a musket, and heading to the front lines. It's a beloved story that makes the battles of Lexington and Concord so embedded in American lore. There were farmers who beat British regulars in battle. Throughout the Revolution, as well as the War of 1812 and the Mexican War, the government continued to rely on temporary troops recruited by states and placed into federal service. 
It didn't matter that these troops were often poorly trained, poorly led, and poorly equipped. There was still the idea that American spirit and grit could carry the day over the best armies in the world, so it was state troops that both sides had to call upon. On April 15, 1861, President Lincoln called for 75,000 troops to serve for three months to put down the rebellion. He was calling for state militias, existing organizations that could temporarily be put on the federal payroll until the crisis period had passed. But it's worth asking, where did Lincoln get the authority to call for state troops when he didn't have the power to add to the regular army that his office was ultimately in charge of? The answer has its beginnings at a small battle in present-day Ohio in 1791. The nascent federal army experienced one of its first moments of crisis on November 4, 1791, when a force of 300 regulars and 700 militia were obliterated by a coalition of Shawnee, Miami, and Delaware warriors at the Battle of the Wabash. The battle, which is also known as St. Clair's Defeat, after the general who led the American army into ambush, created a real problem for the Americans. Without a protective force in place, the frontier Northwest Territories were open to chaos, not just from collaborating natives, but also from British regulars who were still posted on the frontier. And to make matters worse, the Constitution gave only Congress the right to raise armies, both regular and militia. Back then, Congress did not meet as often as today, so when the defeat happened, there was no way a new army could be quickly raised and sent out to deal with the existing threats. To deal with the problem, Congress passed the Militia Act in 1792. The bill was in two parts. The first part gave the president the authority to call out state troops, and I quote here, whenever the United States shall be invaded or be in imminent danger of invasion from any foreign nation or Indian tribe, or whenever the laws of the United States shall be opposed or the execution thereof obstructed in any state by combinations too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceeds, or by the power vested in the marshals by this act. The law was slightly amended in 1795, but was essentially the same as it was in 1792 when President Lincoln invoked the legislation in the hours after the firing on Fort Sumter. And so President Lincoln used the Militia Act of 1795 to call forth 75,000 troops. In President Lincoln's call, he and Secretary of War Simon Cameron make it clear that troops were being called out to suppress a rebellion. Ordinary law enforcement measures were unable to cope with the situation, and better armed men were needed to take control in the seven states that had then seceded from the Union. Now, this situation is not without precedent. In 1794, the federal government had used the Militia Act to call out troops to help put down the Whiskey Rebellion in western Pennsylvania. But this was on a much greater scale. However, you can easily make the argument that troops were being called out to prevent an invasion of the United States. Just look at Washington, D.C. It was the capital city. And capturing a capital has always been the symbol for success in warfare. The four years it took the Union to take Richmond are evidence of that. And at this point, Washington, D.C. was defenseless. There were no troops to speak of in the city, no fortifications, no heavy guns. And to make matters worse, D.C. was flanked by two slaveholding estates, Virginia and Maryland. And they were packed with Southern sympathizers. Virginia ended up joining the Confederacy, and Maryland remained, but only with the help of questionably legal means by the federal government. Washington needed to be secured, and the best way to do so was to call on already prepared state troops to rise to arms and come to the capital as quickly as possible. Men arrived in the city in as little as five days. And many of these 90-day men guarded the city and began to construct fortifications, but never saw any time in the field. 
They really seem to be a force of men set up to protect against invasion. Now, the second part of the Militia Acts of 1792 and 1795 made it mandatory for all able men between the ages of 18 and 45 to serve in the militia, which required reporting for training twice a year, keeping a musket, bayonet, bullets, gunpowder, and a knapsack on hand and ready to go at all times. The thing was, this law had not really been filed all that thoroughly. It was hard to enforce in that era, with spread out communities and limited communications, and while cities like New York, Philadelphia, and Boston had strong militia cultures, not all that many men were active in military activities leading up to the Civil War. In the South, militias were already forming as soon as the secession crisis came to a head. Various states were operating units independently from the word go. Militia in South Carolina were responsible for the shots fired in Fort Sumter, while state troops in Arkansas, Florida, and elsewhere seized federal arsenals and installations before secession had technically even been ratified in those states. When a provisional Confederate government came to power in February of 1861, many of their laws were inspired by existing laws of the United States, including the Militia Act. It was determined early to utilize state troops to supplement southern defenses until an adequate regular army could be established. And for a nation designed to protect states' rights, the Confederate government gave extensive powers over troop command to Jefferson Davis, powers President Lincoln probably dreamed of having. Basically, Davis was made commander-in-chief on February 28, 1861, when he was given command of all military operations in every state, and was able to put troops under Confederate jurisdiction when he was offered men by state governors. About a week later, Jefferson was given authority to call up militias to serve for six months, plus accept 100,000 volunteers for up to a year's worth of service. So by the start of the war, the Confederacy had a plan. In the North, little had been done to prepare for combat before April 15th. New York was an exception, but just by a matter of hours. The day before, the 14th, the New York legislator had authorized raising 30,000 troops for two years of service to fight the rebellion. Plus, they'd authorized the funds and resources to make all necessary actions happen. But for the most part, the call for troops set off three weeks of chaos. James McPherson calls it rage militaire in his work for Causing Comrades. The patriotic fever that happened just a few times during the Civil War, especially in April and May of 1861. Men on both sides didn't just want to fight. They were almost desperate to. And so states began accepting and equipping more men into the service. They didn't have to do this. The call for troops on April 15th established a quota, something that would be used for most of the 11 different calls for troops the North had during the war. Many of the smaller states had to send just one three-month regiment to the front, but the biggest states, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, had to send more than a dozen. Men wanted to fight, and the states often kept bringing in troops, even if they had already met their three-month regiment quota. But there were no real guidelines on how to raise these troops, and so states began to improvise. Many states, including Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, just kept raising three-month regiments until they were told to do so otherwise. Maine sent the required militia regiment to the front, and then raised another regiment for three months also. However, without the men knowing... All enlistees had actually signed up for two years of state service, which meant they spent most of their time two years instead of three months on the front lines. New York especially added to the chaos by raising their own two-year regiments. The state was well-equipped to meet its quota of 17 regiments of three-month troops. And because of internal regulations and generous financing, the state was able to raise 25 more regiments of infantry. That's up to 1,000 men each. However, because of a state decision without federal guidelines, the men were only required to serve for two years. 
with all these different practices going on, it didn't take long for Lincoln and the War Department to sort out this lack of protocol. On May 3rd, that's only two and a half weeks later, another call was placed for 42,000 troops, this time for three years. And three years quickly became the norm. In fact, many states took three-month regiments that were still forming and flipped them into three-year regiments, or regiments served for three months, saw little action, returned home, and almost in mass re-enlisted as three-year units. In New York, this created even more confusion. Regiments being recruited for two years of service were being accepted by the federal government, but many were still not complete by the time the May 3rd call for troops was published. Under the second call for troops, the War Department authorized different defense committees in the state to raise an additional eight regiments for three years. So in essence, the 38 two-year regiments authorized by the state were competing for recruits against the eight three-year regiments authorized by the federal government. Regiments were eventually filled, but chaos reigned in the process. Because the demand to enlist was so high at the beginning of the war and at other points throughout, states would often exceed their quotas. Even though their quotas were met, often extra units would be accepted. For example, following a call for 500,000 troops in the summer of 1862, Maine was quoted to furnish four new regiments to the Union war effort. Officials broke the state into four quadrants and filled their quotas by recruiting men into regiments representing each region. However, enough troops signed up to allow for a fifth regiment from troops from across the state, and the extra men were grafted together to form the famed 20th Maine. This regiment was accepted into the federal service without any questions. But in a more extreme example, in the spring of 1861, the state of Pennsylvania raised an additional 15,000 men beyond their allotted quota. They offered these troops to the federal government, but they were denied. A lack of resources was cited, but political differences between the Secretary of War and the Pennsylvania's governor was the most likely cause. In response, the state funded and equipped the 13 regiments of infantry on their own, and the Pennsylvania Reserves were accepted into the Federal Service a few months later. The process of recruiting a regiment often varied by state and by the war's phase. This also very much depended on populated state versus rural state. In the less populated regions of the United States, and across much of the Confederacy, areas were rural, agrarian, and spread out. In these areas, companies were often raised by proactive citizens, for example, Rufus Dawes, who would command the 6th Wisconsin at Gettysburg and would father a vice president of the United States later on, was home visiting when war broke out and decided to raise a company, even though he was technically living in Michigan at the time. Or there was the professor of chemistry at Amherst College who recruited a company of students as they were leaving the chapel the Sunday after the war began. These companies would be raised and their services would be offered to the state, who would then mesh random companies from towns and counties across their native areas to form thousand-man regiments. It's commonly thought that regiments were raised from the same town, but this is often not the case. Companies would be sent to gathering areas around their respective states, and it was up to state war departments to assemble regiments. Uh, the state war department, by the way, usually called the adjutant general's office. These adjutant general offices would form companies, whatever they had on hand, really, and they would kind of paste together a regiment as fast as possible. 26th North Carolina, another famous re regiment from the Battle of Gettysburg, is a great example. They were formed in companies that draw from at least eight different counties. Or, think of the Iron Brigade. There were men from Beloit, Wisconsin, which wasn't a very big town at the time, in all three regiments in the Iron Brigade at the Battle of Gettysburg, just because of how the recruiting was done. 
But there were other regiments that were raised completely in one place, or nearly so. For example, the 147th New York, a regiment from upstate New York, was raised almost exclusively from that somewhat rural county. Uh, Many New York and Philadelphia regiments were also raised exclusively within their individual borders. And still other regiments don't really fit the description of state troops. This was also a fairly common occurrence. Take, for example, the 40th New York, one of the first eight regiments raised for three years in New York State. The efforts of two different committees could not raise enough troops for the regiment, which was organized just north of New York City in Yonkers. Eventually, four companies, that's about 400 men, were furnished by New York State, while another 400 were raised in Massachusetts, and another 200, or two more companies, were brought in from Pennsylvania. They all fought as New York troops. There's also the interesting case of the Philadelphia Brigade, which started out as the California Brigade. Uh, It was troops raised exclusively in Philadelphia in 1861, but they were raised as the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th California because California wanted to make sure that they were represented in what some people thought was going to be a short-term war. There are plenty of instances also where regiments were raised as a whole instead of put together as they trickled as companies trickled to the field. Um, in many instances, regiments were ordered to be raised by individuals and were then to be presented to the state upon completion. It's not as simple as that, though. I mean, oftentimes units couldn't be fully raised. A recruiting project could be too ambitious, or the leaders of the recruitment process were not talented enough to attract enough men to their unit, especially in congested areas like New York City. And that would force the state adjutant general's office to improvise and again combine units to make a whole one. A great example of this is the 59th New York. The regiment uh, was a combination of six different regiments that could not be completed. Men had listed and were sworn into the service, and the state government simply fused a bunch of these random units together to form a group that would fight cohesively for three years. Other states, like Ohio, would uh, designate their regimental numbers before the troops were mustered in, and some regiments existed only because they could not successfully be completed. In the South, there was less systematic control over raising military units. As we mentioned earlier, a lot of them were raised on the company level, and there were... There were fewer large communities in the South, making it difficult to recruit large numbers of men into one unit. For the particularly ambitious, because it seems more common to offer up troops for service in the Confederate Civil War service than wait for authorization, since Confederate troops often voted for their officers, uh, there was enticement by Confederate officers to raise units so they could try to get ahead and get rank. Uh, So there was always opportunities to raise units at the beginning of the war. That's one of the novel things about the Confederate war effort. The number of regiments that were raised that were really unique comes to mind specifically something like Hampton's or Cobb's Legion. These units were omnibus in nature. They had infantry, artillery, and cavalry, and they were originally intended to be on the field and everyone fights together. But these units were soon to be found rather useless in their nature. Uh, Combined arms in the field is not all that possible on a small scale, and the legions were eventually broken up. Uh, However, it is very reflective of the South, a lack of control to tell someone not to do that with with the leading citizenry providing the capital to make it a reality. Uh, I've mentioned mustering in a few times. Uh, I'd like to clarify that a little bit. 
I keep glancing over it for the sake of the bigger picture of the story, but getting men to join the service is really critically important. When the war started, men were obviously anxious to join up. Uh, there was plenty of fanfare. John Bigelow talks about choruses, parades, lots of speeches, and there was lots of guilt tripping. Anything it took to get men interested or guilt tripped into joining the ranks, there were these big. There would often be these big meetings and. Men would commit their names to a piece of paper and head off for a physical. This was more of a show than anything. Men basically reserved a spot in a regiment this way and had not yet formally enlisted. This was done at an actual recruiter's office where men were given another physical. If he passed, he was sent to a regiment and mustered in, which that means basically just sworn in, kind of taking the oath of office, if you will. And they were sworn in as a member of the army for whatever term he signed up for. I should know, I've talked a little bit about two- and three-year regiments so far, uh, at various times, there were different units raised. There were three-month regiments at the beginning of the war. Um, at a crisis point in 1862, the United States raised um, nine-month units. They raised six-month units. At the end of the war, they raised one-year units. Uh, con- the Confederates didn't really do that. They raised regiments for a year and ended up keeping them in the duration for the rest of the war. The process of mustering in didn't take long. Men in the 12th Vermont were mustered in in about two weeks after they enlisted. Regiments often mustered in together or in large groups, meaning all the men that started their service around the same time. It's important to know that the recruitment process never really ended north or south. Regiments would put a full complement of men into the field when they were first created, but from that point on, their numbers were always diminishing through disease, battlefield casualties, other conditions, or, or other jobs behind the lines, these men would need to be replaced, and units were constantly working to refill their ranks. It's a misconception that the Confederacy recruited to fill holes in regiments while the Union simply created new ones. Both sides actively worked to fill existing units. Some long-serving regiments on both sides raised more than 2,000 men over the course of the war. Of course, in the North especially, there were many instances, especially from the start of the war through the fall of 1862, where there were new regiments being raised. It's quite understandable when you think about it. There's the excitement of forming a new unit. Uh, There was officers perhaps you knew a little bit better. Uh, You were serving with men who were as new to the service as you. Maybe you were joining up with your friends. Uh, There was always the chance for a higher rank of, you know, entering the unit, entering the army as a sergeant or a corporal. And there was also that promise of, you know, the newness as opposed to joining an existing regiment. Now... We do need to mention the draft. Uh, I think this is an issue that deserves its own podcast because of the political and racial issues surrounding it. But uh, we we need to mention here that drafts were created to fill lagging enlistment quotas. Obviously, every state had a quota in the North, and there was just more of a need for manpower in the South. The South declared a draft first in 1862, and the North the North started their own in 1863. Neither draft was particularly effective, which I think would surprise a lot of people. Of the 200,000 men brought through draft-related channels in the North, that's about 150,000 who were paid to join the ranks in place of someone else, and an actual 50,000 draftees who joined up, There were only that's only about 2% of the total fighting force of the North in the Civil War. And obviously this is important, because it brought men into the ranks, and it was a huge motivating factor later on in the war. But it didn't have the dramatic impact in troop power that I think um, a lot of people think it does. 
Also, another issue that definitely will have its own podcast at some point, I just need to mention it now, are the 183,000 men who fought in the United States Colored Troops. These were all black regiments that started to form in late 1862 as the Union began to gain control over more slaveholding areas along the Mississippi River. As more slaves were freed, more and more men were recruited into all-black federal regiments, which very much helped offset lagging recruiting numbers in the North. Uh, But again, this is a fascinating topic and very much deserves its own discussion. So, as we mentioned previously with enlistment lengths, I have to mention that these enlistments, believe it or not, ran out over time. The first three-month regiments for the Union went home in July and August of 1861. Their presence was not missed all that much because there was still constantly troops dreaming in to replace them. But the first real big batch of troops leaving that made an impact uh, was the, the spring of 1863, That was between the battles of Chancellorsville and Gettysburg in the Virginia Theater of War. Uh, These were all New York troops, with the exception of two regiments from Maine. Basically, these men were just contractually required to serve two years, and then when those two years were up, they simply packed up and went home. Obviously, so many men leaving was a huge problem. The Army of the Potomac was forced to dramatically reorganize between Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, and the Army lost up to 15,000 experienced soldiers in the process. The Federal War Department realized they could not sustain the mass departure of troops again, especially when the heart and soul of the armies in the field would see their enlistments up in the early spring of 1864, just as the active campaign season was about to begin again. And this was a problem not just in Virginia, but across all theaters of war for the Union. The War Department knew they needed to compel men to re-enlist to preserve their experienced veterans and the units that could be relied upon after years of hard campaigning. In order to do so, a series of incentives were offered to bring men back into the fold. Soldiers were allowed to carry the title Veteran Volunteer and were allowed to wear a special indicative chevron to show that they had re-enlisted after three years of service. Men were also given a month-long furlough, a trip home to see the families they hadn't seen in perhaps several years. Men who re-enlisted were also offered a $400 bounty from the United States, paid over a length of months along with regular wage. This is in addition to state and local bonuses that also may have been offered. Bounties became increasingly important as the war continued. As patriotism wore thin and war weariness and the reality of combat set in, cash incentives became the easiest way to get men into the ranks. The 186th New York, raised for a year of service in the summer of 1864, was recruited with bounties up to $1,000 going to each man who was willing to enlist. To put that into context, that's about $15,000 in today's money. And for men who were re-enlisting in the spring of 1864, there was also the incentive of keeping their regiment intact. The War Department declared that regiments that saw a 75% re-enlistment rate would be allowed to keep their original regimental designation. This was a fantastic source of peer pressure. The 6th Wisconsin, for example, was able to keep its regimental designation because a total of 227 out of 290 men re-enlisted over a two-week period in early 1864. And you can only assume as they got closer to that target number of 75%, the amount of peer pressure that was happening within the ranks to get men to rejoin the unit. For regiments that didn't hit that 75% benchmark, identity quickly went out the window. It's important to remember that not all men joined these regiments at the same time. When a man signed up for a regiment, he was actually joining the war effort, not a specific unit. He was just being guaranteed a spot in that regiment upon signing up. 
So if a man signed up for three years of service, let's say six months after his regiment took the field, he would have to complete his time of service regardless if his regiment kept its designation or not. So if most of his peers went home, he would still have to remain and fight. It was standard practice in this situation to transfer troops between units if there were men who needed to serve out their term. The transferring of men was not all that common in the Civil War. A man was most likely to leave one unit for another if he had secured a commission as an officer or had been promoted. The common soldier was usually only transferred when enlistments were in question. Perhaps the most famous example of this is the second man in the movie Gettysburg. In the fictionalized version of events, mutinous men are shipped to the 20th Maine because they signed three-year papers instead of two-year papers, and they wanted to go home with their peers. However, in real life, they were held because they had a longer term of service. In reality, this was a common occurrence, and men were rarely allowed to finish their service early. In the case of the second main, men signed on for three years after the second main had already taken the field, before the three-year regulations were passed in early May of 1861. These men had no choice but to serve further. Men who still had time to serve when their compatriots were sent home were usually transferred to another unit from their home state. Depending on how the process was done, certain men could end up serving in three or four regiments. For example... Henry Klein was a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. He started out serving in the 101st New York out of Syracuse. That unit was always under mans, and after taking some pretty awful casualties at the Second Bull Run, the unit was disbanded. The 101st was folded into the 37th New York at the beginning of 1863. However, the 37th New York was a two-year unit, while the 101st was a three-year unit, and when the 37th New York went home, the remaining men were shipped to the 40th New York, which means that Henry Klein was serving with this third different regiment of the war, only one of which he signed up for by the time he won his Congressional Medal of Honor for actions in 1865. And, by the way, the 40th New York ended up absorbing six different regiments by the time the war was over. By the time the war was over, some men, a few, the numbers are scarce on this, had survived four years of combat, disease, accidents, and whatever else had come their way. Up to three million men fought under arms during the Civil War, about two million for the Union and 750,000 for the South, but those numbers are not particularly accurate. It's really hard to know exactly how many fought. The actual numbers will never really be known. The record-keeping wasn't that good during the era. New estimates do suggest that three-quarters of a million men died during the Civil War, through all kinds of attrition, with many more permanently disfigured or altered during the fighting. Fortunately, the men who joined the ranks during the Civil War did not have to wait long after its conclusion before they were able to go home. April 1865 was a momentous month, and Confederate armies began to topple in succession as the Confederacy collapsed. Lee's surrender compelled Johnston to do the same, and smaller Confederate departments around the South capitulated over the next month. At this point, it was obvious to all involved that the war was over and surrendering troops were given generous terms. Confederate men were free to go home and resume their lives as long as they promised not to fight against the Union again. This promise was generally upheld, and the Confederate army soon surrendered until there were none left. With no troops left to fight, Union regiments were no longer needed. There was no longer a threat to the country, and the rebellious acts that were occurring in 1861 had finally been quelled. The terms of enlistment for men who were still under arms at this point were clear. Three years or the war's end. And finally, the war did end. Throughout the late spring and most of the summer, units were shifted, reorganized, and eventually swapped out. Slowly, units were deconstructed and sent home. 
By the fall, most of the volunteer units had been disbanded and the troops, state volunteers who had been exposed to all kinds of hardship and misery and danger, were sent home once again to become ordinary citizens. To learn more about the show, the host, and for what works cited, visit CivilWarsShorts.com and be sure to follow on Twitter and like us on Facebook.